Hello and welcome to Stomp Death and Taxes. This is Meep, also known as Mary Pat Campbell. And before I get into it today, and it's going to be about death today, um, quick answering of common questions. Stump, the name Stump actually comes from my husband and my names. Uh, Stump is Stu and MP. Stu is my husband and MP is me, Mary Pat. And Meep also comes from MP. And it's my high school nickname, Meep, from some very lazy friends. And there's a whole boring story that goes along with it. But it's one of those nicknames that has stuck to me for over 30 years because essentially it is just fun to say meep, meep. And people have associated both the roadrunner of, you know, Wiley Coyote, Looney Tunes fame, and also Beaker from the Muppets with me, meep, 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 with uh, Bunsen Honeydew. Um, and people find it very funny to call me meep. And so it's really stuck to me. I use the handle meep or Meep Bo Beep on the internet all over the place that said, I don't want to confuse people too much. I'm Mary Pat Campbell. That's enough about that crap. Let's move on about death. Um, so I haven't been able to talk about death trends much lately because it's been crunch time at work. There's deadlines. We have forecasts to get out and, you know, they pay me. Um, I cover in my day job life insurance, reinsurance, uh, the investment trends of insurers, regulatory trends in the insurance biz, primarily, of course, in the United States. And I do look at mortality trends that inform this, and it's a little different from what I do in the blog. So I was going to talk a little bit about that today. And what do I look about? And I do need to look at, of course, what is happening in the general population because it does affect what happens in the insured population. But I do have to adjust when I'm making forecasts or trying to do analysis of what's happening to, say, group insurance, group life insurance, or other lines of business. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and how to interpret things because I've, I've seen people take some of the insurance experience studies through the pandemic for individual life insurance and group life insurance. And, you know, I, I haven't had time and, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment to uh, go over some of the SOA research to try to explain um, how to interpret what they've done because they do what's called actual to expected. Um, but we'll get, we'll get back to that. And people have been misinterpreting what's been coming out of that mainly because they have access to grind. They have preconceived notions of theories that they want to confirm. And when you have confirmation bias coming in and you're not interested in considering other explanations for the same data. Um, well, yeah, you're going to come to your conclusions and not think, well, maybe there is something else going on. And then they traipse away when the data do not confirm what they're looking for. Okay. So in the life insurance business, there are basically two big groups of types of products. There's 
individual and there's group. And you may wonder like, what's the difference between individual and group? The difference is how do we issue the policy as it were. So for group, you don't actually get a policy per se. You get issued something under, and I don't want to get into all the jargon, a certificate. So the group and where you may be most familiar with this is through employment benefits. So you work for an employer and you might get group life insurance coverage. And so the business is actually sold to the employer and then individual employees get covered. You're not individually underwritten for your risk. So the price may differ by say sex and age in terms of the premium that's charged. And you may not even be charged as an individual employee for the difference of your risk, even though there's quite a bit of difference by sex and age and other things, but you're not underwritten per se. So you might actually be, you know, covered for a flat amount, say $50,000, or you may be covered for a multiple, and it's usually a low multiple, like one or two times your base salary. Okay, those are some standard coverages. And usually, the insurers will price your company based on the general mix of employees. Is it a white collar company, blue collar, you know? So my company, for example, that I work for, you know, we're in the financial sector. We're mainly, you know, working from in front of computers. Most of us have college degrees. We're pretty low risk though. Most of us are, you know, kind of middle-aged. So we tend to be older. Um, so you get that kind of pricing. And actually, here's the other thing. And this is where they may be interested in diversity, uh, you know, in trying to diversify your employee base, because, of course, you know, you might be more heavily male if you're in, say, a financial tech or engineering sector. That's higher mortality. Da, 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 da. Um, and then you might have a different employers say it's construction. And again, very heavily male, but they may tend to be younger than, um, say, a financial sector office. Um, but still, they may have higher mortality. Then you might have, say, a publisher in Manhattan, and that's going to be more heavily female. And again, younger, perhaps, and then that'll be a lower mortality risk. So it's priced on a group basis, underwritten on a group basis basis. Then you have, and, and it can differ how it's priced and et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm being very broad, very high level here. Then you have individual life where you are issued a policy as an individual, though you can also have a joint life policy. And that's usually where it's a married couple gets a policy on two lives. Um, but you are going to be underwritten as an individual. Now it can be simplified underwriting where you just have a simplified checklist um, or some kind of guaranteed issue where, you know, veterans cannot be turned down, uh, but it still may be an individual life policy where you have a policy issued to you as an individual. This is usually priced based on sex and age, but then you may have more detailed medical information that you submit. And there may even be financial information. A lot of that may be involved with how much 
coverage you will be allowed to apply for. We need to make sure you're going to be able to pay for those premiums, but part of it is also something called STOLI, Stranger or Originated Life Insurance. There's a whole history of that. Um, uh, <laughs> and I think I told some stories of the women, I think it was in Las Vegas, who were insuring hobos and then murdering them. Um, yeah, we're not going to go down that particular route, but we want to make sure that you are getting a reasonable amount of life insurance can pay for the premiums of the life insurance and trying to figure out the mortality risk you're taking on. So that will put you in the way we do it for life insurance, for individual life insurance, life insurers still have discrete, that's D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, not E-E-T, E-T-E, I know that's difficult, discrete underwriting classes, and then we'll have a certain number of them. The lowest is usually called standard, um, and that's tends to be very expensive. And then you'll have preferred and like some super preferred. And there can be several underwriting classes where we have a base mortality table and we will have the best mortality for the year you are underwritten. That's called select. And then that will merge into what's called an ultimate mortality table. So there's select and ultimate. So we project into the future where we think that mortality is going to trend towards uh, by age. So it's by policy year. So it's policy year zero when it's issued. That's when it's sold to you. And then policy year one is the next year. So one year after it was issued to you, to you you're at policy year one, and then policy year two, etc. And so you'll be at a certain age and we're uh, we're doing certain assumptions. We're modeling this. This is what life actuaries do for life insurance. Okay, and those are our assumptions. So these are our assumptions. This is going to be what we call our expected mortality. And then in the future, we do experience studies, at which point we have what we call our actual to expected ratios. So that is what the Society of Actuaries is doing, this actual to expected ratios. There are standard select and ultimate tables. Actually, there are standard tables and usually different companies will apply various factors based on how they have their underwriting standards because there's a certain shape to mortality. Um, I've mentioned this before, there's various functional forms that behave very well. And, you know, we do reparameterize it. Uh, the Society of Actuaries will aggregate data. R Life reinsurers will also aggregate data because you actually need, and this is the issue, in people who are trying to compare mortality experience that we see between states, especially small states, and especially just a few um deaths, you need to have a lot of what we call exposure units, which is people years um, and expected deaths. Uh, so what we do when we do these uh, studies, we need to have what we call cells that have a certain minimum number of expected deaths to do what we call credible ratios. And I know I'm using a lot of jargon here. Um, 
And some of this jargon has what sounds like regular English words, and this does cause confusion. We have a term called credibility or actuarial credibility or Bayesian credibility. And you think credible, credibility. And a lot of people think, oh, okay, you know, we think of credible, it's something that's reliable, but this has a very specific, and I'll just say statistical interpretation. And it is based on statistical theory uh, with, and it has to do with, there is a certain amount of noise. There's a certain amount of randomness. We're assuming in the process of, we'll just say the deaths occurring. Uh, usually we are assuming some independence between the deaths, but there can be correlations. You know, I'm just going to push that to the side. And at what point, you know, how many deaths, how many deaths, okay, must a life insurer have until they can depend on their own experience? Um, so at what point can a life insurer look at their own book of business, you know, their their own underwriting and say, hmm, something seems to be a bit off, or there's something about the business we're writing, maybe we need to adjust our assumptions. Okay, you calibrate your model, and at what point do you look at the results and say, maybe this isn't just random noise, maybe there's a signal in there, so think of Bayesian reasoning and that kind of thing. This actuaries developed this credibility theory, but a lot of it, and you heard me say Bayesian credibility, um, Bayesian reasoning, yes, there is a connection. And yes, it's on one of the actuarial exams. <laughs> this is used in life insurance. It's used in property and casualty insurance. Now with predictive modeling, it's kind of embedded, it's implicitly embedded in that kind of modeling as well when you have to recalibrate your models. At a certain point, you know, you, you bring in your data and you realize and you can interpret some of this is not merely noise. You have experience that says, oh, maybe the underwriting's off. So let me give you an example. I used to work at a life reinsurer. We used to have to look at our claims experience because when you're a life reinsurer, you are kind of a step away from the original business. You have the seeding companies. These are the original life insurers that are going to reinsure. And it's usually not 100% of the business, just part of the business to the reinsurer because they're the ones that are officially directly on the hook for the life insurance, the original business, the life reinsured to a certain extent relies on the original insurer to make sure that underwriting is done correctly. But that's not always the case. The life reinsurer of course, has a lot more experience in claims coming in. And so they do audits of their seeding companies to make sure, because often the life reinsurer, because they have so much more experience, will provide underwriting manuals to the life insurers. Yes, I mean, this is getting very wonky, I know. But sometimes the seeding insurers hold less of the more original mortality risk than the life reinsurers. So you have to think of alignment of incentives. Um, uh, sometimes the original insurers, 
and it depends on who owns it, we have investigated, we saw a very large policy. They will have something that's called a retention limit. And then let's say there's a $1 million life insurance policy, but the original insurer will only keep $100,000. That's their retention limit on any specific life. So then they would reinsure $900,000 of that policy to a reinsurer. And it might be more than one reinsurer gets part of that. Well, that means the reinsurer is on more, you know, on the hook for more of the risk than the original insurer. So are there, you know, are their incentives fully aligned? You know, who's going to get most of the profit out of this? And it's not necessarily a 90%, 10% split in the profitability. Okay. It gets complicated. If, <laughs> because if that life insurance policy was part of a whole bag of business that this original life insurer was doing, because a lot of life insurers do more business than just the life insurance. Maybe they're selling mutual funds. Maybe they're also doing annuities and say they are doing a financial planning with a very rich person and they bump up this rich person to a higher underwriting class than they should have. This is the kind of thing reinsurers will investigate. So I bet you didn't know <laughs> this kind of stuff was going on behind the scenes in insurance companies. Now, I mean, it's not like there's all this nefarious things going on. This is just regular audits that are going on between insurers, reinsurers, and you have your regular accounting audits because there's the insurance regulators and the insurance regulators are looking at the reinsurers and the insurers as well. So it's it's this whole web of entities looking over each other's shoulders to make sure everybody's covered. So the the regulators want to make sure that in the event there is a death that the policyholders claims will be honored. Okay, that the reserves are sufficient to pay claims. So the um, regulators are very interested in making sure that the insurers are solvent. They also want to make sure that the pricing and underwriting is fair. So that's the regulators. The reinsurers want to make sure that the original insurers are underwriting according to agreement. The uh, original insurers... Okay, want to make sure the reinsurers are going to pay uh, in the case of a death of one of these large policies that that claim will be covered. Uh, I mean, so there's a lot of different interests. And these are the kinds of things that actuaries or I'll say actuarial students, when we're taking the exams, we get examined, <laughs> examined on when I'm writing. And when I say writing, when I'm making up exam problems for the ERM exam, I haven't done that in a while, by the way, but that when I'm working, I, I work on the ERM exam. Um, so these are the kinds of things I think about. So solvency is a big issue. Okay. And now let me get back to the mortality trend. So I'm talking about, these are the things that the insurers are looking at and they have their experience studies and the reinsurers and the original insurers and the society of actuaries. So the society of actuaries can, um, 
they are able to, being a nonprofit and they're outside of the industry, they can aggregate the experience from a whole bunch of unrelated insurers outside. They're not regulators. They are, they have a research institute that's separate from um, the core credentialing uh, group currently. So they just split that research institute off and they do experience studies that is shared for free to the entire industry. And the regulators can see it. The insurers can see it. Everybody can see it. Anybody can see it. They've done experience studies through COVID. They did it for group life insurance. They've done it for individual life insurance and they've shown it quarterly. Now, some people have been misinterpreting some of these actual to expected ratios, but that's fine. There have been some really extreme A to E ratios, but part of the issue is people have been looking at these A to E ratios in isolation from basically all other years. So it does help to have seen what quote, a normal year looks like. So you know what the fluctuations, especially seasonal fluctuations, tends to look like. You need to know how they're defining the E, the expected. Did they put this the normal seasonal fluctuations in there for expected? So like when I do my uh, mortality, and I, I hate saying excess mortality, usually right now I'll say the mortality change posts. And I've been comparing against 2019 because 2019, as I keep saying, was a boring year. That said, there is research that the Society of Actuaries has been publishing where excess mortality is defined explicitly multiple ways. One is you compare it against extending a trend. One is like um, you compare it against an average over specific years, and they use different years. But this is the question, should you compare it against a specific year, average of years? Because of course you have seasonality like with flu and 2019, I keep saying was a boring year because it was quiet for seasonal flu, but there had been some bad flu years preceding 2019 and I wasn't including that. It would be more fair, frankly, to compare it against average flu years. And 2019 was a kind of quiet flu year. Um, so if I at least did averages, but why not trend certain causes of death? And many causes of death were trending downward while some were trending upward in mortality. Um, so like drug overdoses had been trending upward. Suicide, unfortunately, had been trending upward. Um I mean, what should I do as a baseline if I want to do comparison for changes in causes of death uh, in terms of the age-adjusted death rate for 2020 and 2021? This is difficult. And when I'm doing life insurance and people may be thinking, oh, well, you should exclude these. Well, the causes of death in life insurance for group life and individual life is different from the overall uh population. Now, part of it is because the age, uh, the ages of what you see in the business is very different. So for group life, that's mostly employee benefits. So you're mainly seeing people from about age 25 to about age 65. So we focus on that age group specifically. 
And it's going to be mostly concentrated about age 30 to 55. That's where most of the population is in the working age for group life. And so when we're looking at how group life behaves and the reason why those ages are part-time work really doesn't have a lot of group life coverage. Usually you don't have anything. You don't have any employee benefits, more or less. Group life insurance is not required by anything. So it's just like a nice to have kind of benefit. Um, and it's a pretty common benefit. It's a cheap benefit for employers to give their employees. And there's some tax benefits to having this benefit, by the way, uh, for the employers. But, um, you know, most part-time employees do not have this coverage. And so younger employees tend not to have this coverage. And then over age 55, you start to see more and more people retiring. So you don't have as many people in that age group. For individual life insurance, that skews more towards older people because you have, of course, more older people dying, um, but it's more the permanent life insurance. So you have term life, and that has a lot of face value, and that's, you know, tends to be younger people, but not many of those people die. Most of the people dying are pretty old. And of course, most of the ownership of whole life or universal life and definitely variable universal life policies are older people, you know, over age 60. And that's not, they didn't buy it necessarily when they were old. They bought it maybe when they were 50 or 55. Um, but the ownership and the exposure is at older ages. And so when we look at the business as a group overall, it's going to be very biased towards what's happening to like the age 60 to say 74 age group um, in concentration. Anyway, yeah, that was a very wonky <laughs> one. Um, so yeah, I'm like kind of really getting into the business. This is where my head is right now. Uh, if you want to know like the kinds of things I'm thinking about when I'm not writing about this, I don't write about this for the blog, but you know, just giving you a little taste. Um, I will do some videos about the Society of Actuaries research just so to help some people interpret this better. No, I am not going to address the conspiracy theories about this stuff right now. Uh, but the SOA is, a uh, you know, a fairly disinterested group in that they are just going to do the analysis of the data. You know, they're going to aggregate it of the, it's not all the insurers, by the way, it's whatever insurers are actually participating. Not all of them participate, of course, um, because you need a certain level of detail. You need a certain number of lives, as it were, exposure-based to be able to do this analysis um, and they will have commentary about the coverage, as it were, of how representative their experience study is of the entire business. You know, it's, it's good to know. It's good to look at. And anybody can look at it. It's free um, for everybody to look. But you'll notice that some of the overall U.S. population mortality experience is related to the insured experience, but it's it's very specialized because not everybody owns insurance. But even if that were true, there's concentrations in terms of, at the very least, age ranges 
of what you need to look at when you're thinking about how is this behaving. And then even within a specific age range, you get different geographic exposures like New York State, Florida, Texas. You know, specific states are very important for insurance for specific reasons. Um, you know, some very important insurance states. And, um, you know, ownership is heavier in certain states than others. That's all. Anyway, I hope you learned something for those who are actuaries who may not be in life insurance or maybe they're actuarial students and need some continuing education credit. Maybe you learned something and you could write a few credits down, maybe 0.5 there. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. Talk to you all next week.